Welcome to the Safari Stories Podcast, the podcast where you'll hear nail-biting stories about all sorts of animals and adventures. Each week, you'll get to ride along as our guests share their amazing safari stories with you. Now, let's jump into your safari stories for today with your host, John Lister. And uh, thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, today we're lucky enough to have Neil Rosewell uh, join us. Uh, Neil has been visiting the park, uh, Kruger National Park, for over 60 years. So uh, there's been a lot of changes in that time and uh, also he's had the luxury of seeing some very great sightings. So what we're going to do today is have a good little chat to Neil about some of his um, sightings. So thanks very much for joining us, Neil. Only a pleasure. Um, and how I like to start is just a little bit of uh, background and introduction about yourself and uh, how you discovered the park and how you started to fall in love with the park. Right. Um, I was fortunate that my parents uh, lived in the Lowfelt, actually in Nelspreet, as, as a child. Uh, I was four years old then, 1960, and um, both my mom and dad were absolutely crazy about the park. So we were in and out the park. Um, oh, every couple of weeks for a day visit, uh, stay over for a night. And um, I think being a child, if your parents are happy, if the family is happy, in a happy place, um, the child gets an affinity for that. So I associate the Kruger Park with happy times, happy family, happy times, and just grew to love everything about it. Uh, the bush, the sounds, insects, birds, trees, the animals. The scenery, everything about the park is deeply ingrained in me. Yeah, wow. And uh, we were talking a little bit beforehand about how much of a change the park's undergone over the years. So um, tell us a little bit about the first time you discovered the park to now. Um, I'll start off in the mid-60s. Being a four-year-old, you don't have many recollections. You have a few. But by mid-60s, I was a young teenager, and I certainly have uh, clear memories of it. Yeah, the park is, has evolved um, immensely and tremendously since the mid-60s. Um, in those days, there was not a single tar road in the park, mm. um, no, no electricity whatsoever, um, no air conditioners. The people can just imagine the heat in the park, 45 degrees in summer, no air cons. Um, some of the uh, units had uh, paraffin fridges in those days. Uh, the shops were very small, very limited uh, groceries and just bare necessities were sold in the shops, not like they are today. And then, yes, uh, obviously people were very, very scarce. There were no bookings. You can imagine a good park. You rocked up at the camp and said, virtually choose the, the unit you want wow. and invariably you would get it. There was no such thing as, as reservations being made in those days. Um, you would you would just pitch up literally, uh, except for long weekends, Christmas, Easter, etc. Obviously, then there would be more traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the late sixties, the first tar road um, was put into the park uh, between Numbi and Skukuza. <clears throat> excuse me. And obviously, the the old people, my mom and dad, were terrified that the tar would scare all the animals away. Um, it was a big concern that the animals are going to be terrified of this black tar. Or, and, but it, it proved the exact opposite. It attracts especially cats. They love the, the warmth of the, of the tarmac, so they, they come and relax on it. Um, <clears throat> the experience uh, in the camps itself were totally different from what they are now. You had uh, a hut attendant, they were called. He would be on duty even if you got there at o'clock in the evening. 
Uh, you would carry your suitcases into your bungalow, put them down where you asked him to, and then he would ask you, are you going to have a braai or barbecue, as it's known in some places? Um, say, yeah, we're going to have a braai tonight. You would go around to the fireplace with a, with a large shovel and actually bring coals and put them in your, in your briar. And wow. once you were settled and you had your coal and you had your hut was sorted, any problems, then he would only knock off beer at half past six, seven o'clock at night, depending on what time gate closure was. So that, that would be uh, a bit strange. And of course, there was, there was the, the picnic spots had no facilities. It was purely a fire going and a little fridge, paraffin fridge with a few sodas, cokes and so on for, for, for the heat. And that was basically very, very uh, primitive in those days compared to now. Wow. And, and what about the sightings? How different was that when you saw the animals and that sort of thing? Um, the sightings were similar. Obviously, the, the one thing that hasn't changed about the park, John, is the, is the bush side of the park. Um, apart from the roads and, and, and a few things like that, You're, when you see lions today, they are like the lions were in the 60s or a leopard or whatever. But obviously, volumes of traffic were incredibly less than now. Um, a big sighting would be five cars, seven cars. That would be a, a leopard on a kill or, or lions on a kill, mating lions, something like that. You'd normally one or two cars or on your own, um, you know, at a site. So the, the thing that's changed tremendously or that's changed the nature of the park are, are, are two things. The OSVs, yes. um, which um, Nothing wrong with OSVs. I've got beautiful friends that, that are in the OSV industry, lovely, lovely people. But obviously they, they are there to serve the tourists. So they need to, to get to the, to the sightings to, to provide their customers. Otherwise, they, they won't have customers. It's logical. My, my feeling is the biggest thing that's changed is digital photography. In the olden days, you had one or two photographers that would take up the prime spots. Everybody else would park even 100, 200 meters away. As long as you could see the leopard in the tree, have a good look at it with the binocs, never had cameras. Today, with the affordability of the digital cameras, you can get a reasonable one very cheaply. Everybody wants the shot. Everybody wants the prime spot to get the best photo. And that's why the congestion is so much. That, that's just my thought on, on that. That's the big change, I would say, outside of the camps. Yeah, fair enough. And, and I, I suppose another thing would be um, finding sightings. You know, it's all word of mouth uh, in the early days. There's none of the text messages. Well, surely it was by word of mouth. Um, everybody was uh, more relaxed in those days. So everybody waved at each other as you passed. If somebody didn't wave at you in passing, it would be, wow, what's wrong with that guy? He must be having a bad day. <laughs> and yeah, and you would stop people and say, you know, five k's down that road there's a pride of lines and and that was the the info in those days today there are all the apps we won't mention any names there are various ones yeah. it's also leading to congestion certainly because the the good thing is though that um the the apps on 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 social media only work for sort of a k or two out the camp so if you've 10 k's out of camp and you wanted to post a sighting you've got no way you've got to wait back you know till you get back to signal so that's the one good thing. Uh, more the problem is 
the OSBs are all on radio contact. And, and so they, if one guy arrives, you'll find within 20 minutes, there's 20 other guys if it's a good site. So, but the normal apps, everybody feels very threatened by it, but they forget that there's, there's no, there's no signal outside of two, three Ks from the, from the camp. That's it. You've got no signal till you get to the next camp. So you can't, you can't actually post the sightings until you arrive at your destination. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you, you say that because as a kid, when I was going, um, we always used to, Dad, Dad, say hello to this car and have a chat. And it was a really exciting sort of a bonding sort of a moment. Whereas now you can have a spell there where you'll drive past numerous cars and no stopping. And it's almost strange to stop. Yes. And the people are in a hurry. Yeah. The people are in a hurry because... Um, I suppose you could put it down. They want to capture their memories. In the olden days, it didn't matter if you saw a fantastic sighting, not because very few people were into photography. I'm talking about 60 years ago. Yeah. Um, it was an old school camera and you'd have to wait <laughs> three months for your pics to get developed and send it away by post and wait for it to come back, where it's now all fingertip stuff, instantaneous. So I think everybody's up and down looking for the big sighting and they, they see the on the social web and the media and the sites they see these fantastic photos and i think everybody whether you're a newbie or an oldie or everybody's going there with an expectation i'm going to see a leopard kill or a lion kill or whatever and and that's not the reality of the, of the story everybody's in a race to find the good the good exactly right and so uh that that brings us to current uh, modern day sightings uh you've had some uh, great luck in the park and seen some terrific um sightings uh tell us a little bit about some of your more recent um, sightings okay we'll start off with one it was um staying at lower sabi we went out on the afternoon drive on the h41 uh, about 12 k's outside of uh, the camp there's a, a little road a dirt loop it's called the s79 and on the way out on the corner of the s79 was a herd of impala and a troop of baboons foraging and grazing in a sort of a little glade not much grass or bush and we passed we stopped we had a look we went past uh, got to the end of our time to turn around back to camp came back stopped again as we stopped um, a python from nowhere we we hadn't seen it at that stage it actually uh, bit an impala a young doe on the back leg that was his point of, of strike got it on the back leg and within an instant he'd coiled himself around the, the, the antelope. The impala took off snorting, running for their lives and uh, the baboons in the other direction all screeching as if, if they were all being attacked. Well, they were under attack. And then once they realized that the, the python was busy constricting the impala and obviously was now incapacitated of further predation, um, they started coming back. That was the amazing thing of the sighting. You actually had the impala herd on the one side of the sighting, all looking at the, at the python and the impala on the ground, and you had the troop of baboons on the opposite side, sitting, checking out the, this gruesome scene that was being you know, played out before them. Um, what amazed me was that after about five minutes of, of constriction, um, the snake, we, we thought the buck was long dead. There was no movement, no visible signs of life in it. But as he shifted his grip on the buck, um, it actually was still wriggling and, and tried to get away from it. After it. So it's a, it's a very long 
slow mm. and, and sad process that these, these animals go through. Um, unfortunately, we didn't see the actual uh, in the ingestion of the, the kill because being in a camp and there are lockdown times, you've got to be back at a certain time. So we had to leave about 20 minutes before camp closure to get back in time and uh, went back early the next morning, but the snake was gone. Funny. Sometimes they lie around once they've but the buck was also not there, so I would assume he successfully ingested it and moved into a place of safety. A very interesting sighting. Wow. Uh, one, one, one thing I'd like to add is uh, the word got out in Lower Sabi in the camp amongst the visitors that somebody had got, because we were the only people at the site. Yes. And once, once uh, we got and saw friends and so on, we actually told them about it. We actually got guys coming around saying, bro, where are the people that, 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 that saw the, the, the python killing the koala? Have they got any pics? And we spent most of the evening with people just rocking, just to come and see the, the, the pictures. Now, that's, that's the one and only time that's ever happened. Yeah, wow. And I suppose it uh, goes to the old adage, uh, right time, right place. Absolutely, absolutely. We were... Um, another another person that you uh, fay with, uh, Hanno Erasmus, he's been mentioned a number of times, a prolific seer of cats. He was around at the time and um, we'd actually spoken to him and he said, no, no, he's not going on, the, on this road. He's going to shoot down on the Croc Bridge Road. And to this day, he's very, very sorry that he didn't just hang around where we were. So, yeah, it's a big standing joke between us. Yeah, if only you'd stay. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And uh, tell us about some of the other sightings that you've had. Okay. Um, a couple of years ago, um, down on business in the low felt, so no camera equipment and uh, get a phone call from Skukuza. They need to see us urgently uh, with a business matter, supplying some goods. To so got to Kruger Gate. Uh, Mid-January, by the way, 45 degrees, tall grass, uh, mm. very, very hot, uncomfortable. Get our permit at the gate, off to Sukuza, see the necessary people. Now, we want to spend some time in the park, so we said, we'd like to go out at Croc Bridge. No, 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 no. The business rules are you have to leave at the closest point of entry, the gate again. Luckily, we were going to see uh, another customer in Kamati Put, and after explaining this, we were given a permit to exit the Put. Driving down the H41, probably between the high water bridge and Nkushu uh, site, about halfway. In those days, they used to cut about a meter, two meters, was shortcut the grass on both verges of the road, which they no longer do. And we saw something next to the road on the short grass. It was a leopard, a big male leopard, sitting in a crouch position. So literally at the edge of the top. And he was intently looking forward along the same direction that we were traveling in. And there were three impala rams grazing or grass. Uh, he sat looking at them, looking, and as they were unaware of him, he actually lowered himself down into a, into a crouch position behind a little bush of approximately feet high and probably two feet wide, a tiny little bush. He um, himself parallel to the road and watch the impala intently. Only calm. And this was midday in mm. January. Um, very, very strange to see a leopard out in, in the heat of the day. Um, gradually, the impala came walking directly towards the leopard, grazing on the short grass, grazing, grazing. And he would lift his rear, he would jack himself up, if you can imagine like a car, his rear uh, end, the back feet would lift himself, 
for, for the charge, and then he would calculate and say, no, nah, they're still a bit too far, and he would he would lower himself back into a crouching position, very, which was amazing, literally meters from us, if that much. And then before any action happened, a game park vehicle, a lorry full of uh, workers with about 20 workers approached from the front, and we thought, no, here goes the sighting. But we flashed our lights because they normally drive through sightings. I mean, they're working. They don't have time to sit around and look at animals. So we fight and I put my hand up and said, you know, showed them. And they stopped and they switched off the engine, believe it or not, about 200 meters away from the sighting. Wow. Anyway, the Impala came. Uh, the lead ram actually started feeding on the little bush that the leopard was lying, not behind, because he was literally in the open next to the bush. Uh, it was too small to conceal him, but it, it didn't see him at all. And of course, the next minute he passed on the impala, completed the kill right next to the road on that on that short piece of grass, um, throttled it, probably took about five minutes. Um, by then, another car or two had arrived, and he was totally, totally out of it. He sat there for about five to eight minutes, just panting, breathless, not having any energy left in him. And then he picked up the impala by the throat and off into the into the thick grass he went. So that not having any camera equipment with us is probably my biggest. And I think if that's the only we might have seen a few more impala or villabies the whole day. I mean, but yeah, that's that's probably one of the best sightings I've ever had. The most thrilling. I mean, I don't think we spoke for about two hours after that. You, you couldn't you couldn't believe what you just. Went. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to have it in the short, shortcut grass um, when there's long grass just there is uh, phenomenal as well. Yes, and 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 the whole kill was completed on the on the short grass part, right? Well, next to the top, because he didn't sort of take the buck into the into the grass immediately. He completed the kill, did his whole resting story there, and once he had the uh, the energy back, he took it and then ducked in. Yeah, fair enough. Well, that's amazing. Very, very so, yes. Yeah. And uh, so uh, tell us a few other stories. I know we uh, discussed uh, there's there's quite a few that you've got with uh, all the years you've spent in the Kruger. Um, yes. Uh, another leopard one I can tell you about was also Lower Sabi. Yes. Um, we, we woke up in the morning. I'm always out, for, same as all the other people that are keen out when the gate opens. And I normally get into finger pointed at me coming back because it's inevitably a minute or two after gate closure. <laughs> I really push the limits. <laughs> Normally yeah. get there with one gate closed already. Um, we woke up and I had a, one tire of the car seemed semi-flat. So I had to wait for the for the garage to open to, to pump the tire. Mm-hmm. And all the cars, at Lower Sabi, the garage is right next to the queue where the cars leave the gate. So there went all the cars, and we waiting for the garage to open. Eventually, we got some air, pumped the tire, managed to get away, more or less quarter past. All cars gone. We went down, crossed the low water bridge, which is right at the, the H10, right, which is the one at Bukwan. Approximately three k's from the bridge, came around a bend, and a big male leopard stepped into, literally stepped into the road in front of us. We drove behind him, walking, walking, sniffing the sides of the road. No photographic opportunities because you're looking at his tail. That's what you can see. He's walking away from you. After about, I'd say, five or ten minutes, he went off the road down into a culvert on the left-hand side of the road. Um, And 
over the years I've learned that one of the leopard's tricks is he goes down on the left-hand side, and while you're waiting for him, he goes under the road, out on the other side, and off he goes on his business. And everyone is looking for him. So I thought, no, today I'm going to be ready for you. So I took the vehicle, went to the right-hand side of the road, parked, switched off. The next thing, there was a roar. It sounded like a lion coming down the culvert from the left-hand side, but magnified by the, the actual pipes. In the, it came out here and, of course, getting a hang of a fright at the, at the sudden sound, outshot two porcupines, adults, and they actually stood on the, on the right-hand side of the road, no leopard in sight yet, and we looked again to the left, and here he came out the culvert with a young porcupine. Well, actually, very young. And the two adults skittled off down the road about 50 meters and stood looking at the leopard. And the leopard stood in the middle of the road in front of the vehicle looking at them. Because obviously, he was now seeing, I've got the little meal, the takeaway, but there's the actual guys I want. And not knowing to what to do, because it was still alive, the, the youngster. He just stood, and you, but you could see the look in his eye was, wow, I, I would rather have had one of those. Hmm. Um, he moved slowly across the road with a, with a porcupine, lay down right next to the road, probably four or five meters off the road, under a bush. Uh, and the amazing thing is I've, I've never seen one eat a porcupine from scratch. I would thought he would enter from the, the stomach side, the soft part. Not at all. He, he plucked his quills off as if he was plucking feathers off a chicken. You just saw quills flying in all directions, plucked its back, cleaned the quills, and then proceeded to consume it. We were there from 6.15, 6.20 till 7, just after 7, vehicle alone. Um, and at that stage, he got up. As he got up, uh, of course, adrenaline very high in the car. It was just the wife and myself. And yes, car arrives and you're bursting to tell them what you've just seen. And it was overseas tourists that didn't understand a word of English. <laughs> that was the frustration of the sighting was, wow, you just want to share this, this sighting you've had. But anyway, they got to see the leopard. That was another uh, very, very, very good sighting that we experienced in the Wow. Um, yeah, that's uh, incredible. And uh, it's once again, right time, right place. Absolutely. And if we hadn't been delayed by 10 or 15 minutes to put air in the tire, we would have been long gone past the guy before he stepped into the road. So yes, it's absolutely opportunity. Exactly right. And uh, tell me, uh, you did mention uh, beforehand a couple of stories about some lions as well. So uh, tell us a few. A few lions, yes. Um, we've, uh, we've got a, we were on the H14, which is north of Satara, heading towards Chokwani on the tar road. Also on an afternoon drive, okay, toddling along the road, about seven k's from Satara, there's a, a waterhole on the left-hand side. It's called Vitpens. Two lions, uh, big males, big, big, beautiful males, had been drinking and they came down, down to the road. The, the, the trough going to, to Willifans is on the left-hand side of the road. They came down, crossed the road and lay down under a bush on the right-hand side of the road. So we got a beautiful sighting of, of them. And then they got up. It was very dry. It was uh, in an October. So there was virtually no grass. It actually looks like a desert at that time of year in the park. Before the rains come, there's not a blade of grass. It's actually just sad. They walked out, say, about 50 to 80 meters off the road and suddenly started digging um, into, the, into the sand on, on an open patch. What are they looking for? Out of the hole, they dragged a huge warthog. Wow. Um, 
by the throat. And they cooperated, subdued the warthog, and proceeded in the normal manner to, to choke it until it was lifeless, which all happened there in, in our view. Uh, and then the fun began because then the two brothers now decided, okay, we've done the job, but now this thing belongs to me, this kill, this warthog. You're not having it. And the other one said, you're not having it either. So there was a bit of a scrap, nothing serious being brothers, but uh, let's call it a brotherly feud, but yeah. uh, a bit of fur flu. And to cut a long story short, the one guy left with a front leg, literally a front leg. That was his portion of what he got of the warthog. He went off with his leg and lay about 20 meters away. And the other guy, boy, he wasn't sharing. He was started feeding straight away, and he wasn't sharing a morsel of that kill. So that was also something very amazing to see, uh, how they actually dug the, the, the water, the poor thing, thinking, I'm safe in my little burrow, and not at all. They got him out there in a, in a wink of an eye. Yeah, wow. That, yeah, that's incredible. And, um, yeah, for them to know where he is, obviously they've seen him go in there or... It looked more as if they, if it was sent because they started sniffing around before the actual digging. So obviously with him living there in the area, there must be quite a strong scent of warthog around his little, I think it was just pure chance. They, they happened to walk right, you know, oh, wow, he has a, he has a warthog burrow. Yeah, wow. Well, there you go. And um, another story that you mentioned prior was uh, about some baboons. Yeah. Um, I would, I'd like to tell you, uh, we'd get to the baboon, but uh, yeah. one I've got lined up is uh, actually a very, a, a person wouldn't think so in dry times, but having spoken to a lot of photographers, um, an actual crocodile is, is apparently pretty rare. I've, I've, I've got friends that, as I say, are professional photographers that sit for three, four days at a waterhole where, where there are crocs. Uh, or have sat there waiting and, and have never never experienced a kill. We we drove down from Lower Sabi on the Tower Road to Croc Bridge, H42 it's called, mm-hmm. and we got to a little dam on your right-hand side, which is called Gizentomvi Dam. It's about three k's from Croc Bridge. Um, we were sitting there. We hadn't seen much. It was one of those days where you just enjoy nature. There's nothing dramatic going on. And there were about 20 zebra drinking on the opposite side of, of the, the dam was very shrunken. Uh, being dry season, it was probably three meters wide at that point where they were drinking. Yes. And I was just snapping away at, at, the, at the zebra. And the next thing, all hell broke. And the zebras all started their calling and running and kicking and snorting. And they actually had biting each other. I didn't know. And, and my wife just shouted, um, They've got it. They've got it. And I'm, I'm through the camera and I'm thinking, well, it must be a line attack or what, what now? And um, I dropped the camera and I saw the croc had a full grown zebra. Got him on the side, uh, on his belly. And it's very tender, obviously, there. It's not like a leg. Or... So I dragged him into the water without much effort. The, the zebra, obviously, as I say, being a tender, was, was easily pulled into the, the water. And another crocodile joined the one in the, in the, in the dam. And they literally walked the zebra calm, no kicking, no snorting, no struggling. Uh, he looked as if it was on a Sunday picnic. They just gently took him to the deeper side near the wall of the dam. 
which was probably 30 meters from where it was uh, actually caught. Mm-hmm. They walked it down towards the dam until they felt the water was deep enough and it was whoops, gone under the water um, mm-hmm. in a flash. And then obviously there were ripples and we shot around the other side of the dam. Uh, there's a parking area where you look at the down on the dam wall from the opposite side. Yes. And eventually after about five minutes, the, the zebra floated to the surface. And the two crocs surfaced with it. They lay around for a while and then, of course, started the feeding, the death roll that they call tearing off the meat and so on. And uh, all the friends that we saw in the, in the park in the next few days, it was August, so there are a lot of people in August, prime time for game view. And I hadn't gone back through my pics and I was bemoaning the fact that I had, didn't get a picture of the croc actually catching the zebra. Yes. I had of the zebra in the dam, I had of the zebra being taken under, I had them after the effect, and probably a week later, after telling numerous people, man, Al, you know how unlucky we were, but it's one of those things. I was, I was sitting in the hut going through, and there, there is a picture of the crocodile actually, actually latched onto the zebra by 100% fluke. I actually was photographing them, having a drink, and wow, yeah, he's a, he has a croc come out, and which we, you couldn't see in the water. Normally you see them sort of edge up, edge up. There was no indication that the guy, but a, a big croc. Yeah, so that was, as I say, a very, very rare sighting of, yeah. of, of a crocodile actually taking a big animal. Yes, so yeah. I wanted to share that. Oh, no, I think uh, that would be uh, top of a lot of people's lists of things that they'd like to experience and see. Um, but like you say, it's a very rare sighting. Very, very rare. Um, the one with the baboon, um, it's not memorable because of the sighting. Um, it's memorable because of the implications it could have had mm. on us. Um, driving along the H41 on a day of our trip, we bumped into Hano Erasmus, and he told us that there's a troop of baboons. It's probably the same troop that the python uh, captured the Impala. That troop, it's around the S79. It's always around there. Mm-hmm. He said there was a male that had started raiding cars, tourist cars. And he'd actually seen the previous day a baboon get into a vehicle uh, oh, wow. and grab grab food out the vehicle and get out and, and sit there eating the food. He actually told us about it. And a day later, we were traveling and we got to the troop of baboons, closed all, all electric windows. So because you, the driver can control them, I automatically just closed, make sure all four windows are closed. Sat, had a look at the guy, had a big plastic bag of of, of empties. There was obviously a rubbish bag that he grabbed out of out of somebody's car. It was all empty packets of snacks and chips and what have you. He was going through it. There's nothing much. We had a look and he said, this, this must be the guy. Big, big male. But this, this is the guy that's raiding the cars. Also created by people feeding them. So they, an animal learns from us teaching them, unfortunately. Um, we start driving away. He's sitting on his haunches. I can see him in the rear view mirror, and I, it's very hot. I open the two front windows. This guy decides he's coming for us, and he comes galloping up on the left-hand side of the, without us seeing him, jumps in through the passenger window. Um, his rear feet were on the window frame. His front feet were on my wife's lap. Uh, his head was between the two of us, uh, right above the gear shift. If you can imagine it, uh, she on the left, me driving. His head was between the two of us because the snacks were on the console. There was some 
dried meat and some fruit snacks and what have you. And he came forward and of course his automatic reaction is you grab for the snacks and he just bared his teeth. But I mean, literally a foot away from my face. Wow. Uh, quite very, very scary. Um, my wife panicked and she started pummeling the baboon. And I'm shouting, leave him, let him take the blooming snacks, just leave him. And she, but she was in a total panic. He actually reversed. He had, he had one hand had snacks in, in, in his one hand, and he thought, well, that's not good enough. And he came in the second time, still bearing his fangs. So a packet of another, so both his front feet were, were full of, of snacks, and, and he leaned back on the window, uh, crouched on his back feet. And that's when the missus actually turned sideways and kicked the guy, actually physically kicked him out of, of the window because he had no more any place to hold on to. And everybody you tell the story to finds it very comical and very funny. And I'm sure it is from, from, from a, an outsider's perspective. But to this day, I get sweaty palms and, and shivers if I think. I mean, he could have taken my wife's face off or bitten and through her neck. I mean, they, they are very serious uh, and dangerous animals. And uh, so that was a, an interesting story to share. Mm -hmm. Scary one. Um, but those are the kind of things that happen in the park. And, and you're taking precaution. It just shows you can never be too, too careful around wild animals. Oh, absolutely. And I, I have to admit, uh, I'm one person that uh, I don't like going through baboons. They're, they're mischievous animals. They rip windscreen wipers and aerials and antennas. And uh, so, yeah, I'm always windows up and I don't hang around in the middle of the troop. I try and through as safely as possible and as quickly as possible. Um, another interesting thing, which, which is, is hearsay uh, from friends in the park, was somebody was asking why have baboons and monkeys become so... Uh, more prevalent in the camps and uh, raiding camps in, in in these days where in the olden days you very very rarely got them in there and then apparently in the olden days you know people were very haphazard uh, as regards eco-friendliness and whatever so the, the, the camp rubbish was apparently just dumped on open sites, uh, no fencing around it, you know, just away from the camp, but in a, in, a, in an open space, in a hollow, obviously that was dug, it would be the rubbish dump. But lately, under the new management, all those sites are fenced. So the troops that used to feed off the, off the rubbish now are turning towards the camp. That's one explanation I've been given for, for why they are so prevalent in the camp. Yeah, wow. Yeah, no, um, they are one animal uh, that can be very, very frightening. So uh, you've got a lucky escape there. Definitely. I don't know if, the, if, uh, if you want to hear any more uh, stories. I, or I'm always happy to hear stories, Neil. So uh, if you've got one or two more, uh, let's continue. And uh... I just wanted to move away. All sightings aren't about kills. Yes. Um, as we all know, the beautiful sightings, uh, I'm not going to go into the run of the mob, beautiful leopard sightings in trees, beautiful lion sighting, mating lion. Um, a very interesting sighting we had was also apparently very rare. They, they're very private about it, was two bucks mm -hmm. that were mating. But the amazing part of the thing is the ritual pre-mating is amazing. Um, we were also on Sitara. Uh, driving up towards elephants, and on on the on the side of the road was the little ram and, and the the ewe, and the ewe is actually bigger than the ram. 
although he has horns and she doesn't, he's actually a bit smaller. There's one of the antelope. He's a bit smaller than the female. Um, And they were grazing. And then obviously he wanted to mate. So he he was walking behind her and scenting to, to, to see if she was ready to mate. She didn't have a key in the world. She was grazing, walking around. He was following her, and he, he uses, he, in this case, he was obviously right foot. <laughs> if I can use, he didn't use his left leg at all. He would actually nudge the female on her back leg with his, with his right front foot. He would nudge her, nudge her, and then she would move off. And he was, it probably took 45 minutes of him wandering around behind her uh, before the actual mating took place. And I do have pictures of, of, of the whole story. But the thing was, even during mating, she was merrily eating away on a bush, not a concern in the world. So yeah. that was, was, was also very, the rarity of the occasion was, and very interesting behavior. That was, that was very good. And a, a very unusual sighting. I don't think a lot of people... Very, would. very, I've, um, most people that I've spoken to have either never seen it or have seen it maybe once or have heard of somebody seeing it, but apparently Steenbuck are very private. They move off into, you know, into grass or bush when they are about to. They don't do it in the open. Yeah, wow. Apparently very commonly. So that that was very rare. Yeah, very um, Yeah, that's about all I've got on the, on the story. I've got uh, oh, one other interesting thing that, that happened to us. Coming back to, to Satara, something that I could never, can't, can't explain till today. Coming back, dusk already, the sun had set. And we saw some little bundle in the road. We, we thought a rabbit. We both said, oh, look, there's a rabbit in the road. And we drove up to it, and it was a baby steenbuck. Baby, baby, baby. He was still wet. So I don't know if the mother gave birth in the middle of the road mm-hmm. because he got up with a hang of a struggle. Um, we positioned the car, as I say, it was dusk, uh, that no other vehicle would drive over the, the little one. He literally potted off the road. He could. He was totally unsteady on his on his legs. I don't know. I think a steenbuck probably within an hour can can walk reasonably. Might not be able to run, but within an hour they can steady. He he was he was totally wobbly on the, on the legs, and he just made it off the tar and went and and lay down there. So with no mother in sight whatsoever. So I don't know if she was in hiding, if she'd been taken by a predator. There were some hyenas five, six hundred meters down the road. Mm. One never knows what happened. But um, the most beautiful little little animal, when they're so small, also got nice pictures of that. But um, that was an amazing thing as well because they're normally so well hidden until they are capable of moving freely and running around for themselves. So, yeah, to, to find such a vulnerable little guy out there was very nice. And um, you've mentioned quite a few camps uh, so far. You've mentioned Lower Sabi and uh, Satara a few times. Uh, when you do go to Kruger, what's the one camp that you have to go and have a look at? What's your favourite? What we do is, um, since I retired four years ago, uh, 2016, I, uh, we spend about 80 days a year in the park. Wow. Uh, into four or five 20-day uh, visits between 15 and 20 days. We spend 80% of our time in Lower Sabi, Satara, um, but we always make time to visit another camp. So we would go to Tambuti, which is a beautiful tented camp near Open. We love it there. We spend all those three or four nights there. Yes. Um, I've stayed in all the 
main camps in Kruger from Punda right down to Crockbridge and probably 50-60% of the bush camps, the Talamatis I've stayed in, Biamiti and those sort of camps, Balule. But all the major camps, they're all beautiful in their own way and they each have their own charm, their own mystery and totally different atmospheres. And I think it's to do that they're all located in areas where there are different animals in the area as well. It's not if you go down to Pretoria Scorp, there are sable antelope, sasabi and other animals around there that you don't find. There are maybe not that many cats. When you go to Satara, very, very cat predominant, cat and predator hyenas, jackal. Um, so it's a different atmosphere. There's a lot of lions roaring at night, lots of cheetah, leopards. Um, why we? And then we also, we go sort of spend a week a year where we go right to the north, Punda Maria, Shinguetsi, Mopani, and we get to Bergendal, we get to Pretoria School. Kusa, you won't find me. It's a lovely camp for game viewing. Too many people, I'm afraid. It's it's like being, I live in a city, so it's like being at my hometown. I don't enjoy it. The hustle and bustle and the scurry. At night, when all the day visitors are gone, yes, it's a lovely camp. But moving in and out and around the camp is, it's a hub. It's very busy. So apart from Skukuza, we, we spend time all over. Mm-hmm. The thing that makes Lovasabi and Satora special is they're centrally situated in the park. They're not on the, on, on, on the border. You have a huge variety. If you take Lovasabi, you can go north to Chokwan. You can take the Kusa Road, the H41. Mm-hmm. You can take the H42 or the S28 down to Croc Bridge. You, and then there's a huge network of roads, the S30, the Salichi Road on the other side of the, the Sabi River. You've got the S121 uh, going down across to Skukuza. There's a lot of roads around the camp. If you feel like going to the plains today, you go north and you're looking for plains animals, cheetahs, reedbuck. That type of game. Then you want to go down and you do the lower Sabi road to Skuza. Totally different animals. You're looking for bushbuck and nyala and water birds and turtles and terrapins, as they called them. Crocodiles, hippos, leopards, of course. Um, or you can have a sort of mixture of the both if you go down. Your variety of drives, if you're there for two weeks at a time or 10 days, you, you, you can drive in different uh, habitats. Mm. Uh, same with Satara, the H7 to open, wonderful. S100, S41, um, north to Olifants, where you find the S147, home of a family of leopards. Mm. Khotso Pride live up there. All beautiful. We, I find if you're at the Crocodile Bridge, which we love and we always spend time at, you basically have the S25, which you can go across to Molalan, or you can take the S28 or the H42 up to Lower Sabi. So you're driving 40 k's before you can start branching out into other roads. Exactly. The same as a Bergendal would be the same scenario. It's on the edge of the park, same as an open camp. They're all in their own right beautiful, but those, that's why those two are my, my favorite camps. Mm-hmm. And so I'll pick one. Uh, let's say uh, you're sitting at the gate, you're the first in line, and uh, you're planning your day and you're, where you're going to go. Uh, how do you select which route you go to and uh, which road you take? Okay, the, uh, you'd be surprised to hear there's no planning. No Fair planning enough. whatsoever. You sit at the gate mm-hmm. and when that gate opens, your mind says to you, I'm going left or I'm going right. Exactly. Uh, you know, I'm going down Crocodile Bridgeway and 
as you drive along, you make up your route. Okay, we're going down to Crop Bridge. Let, we, let's take the S28. We'll drive, do a drive along the S25, maybe come back along the S108 and then drive back along the toll. You actually plan it as you've ta- made the decision to turn left. Turning right to Skukuza, once you've made the decision and you start your uh, spotting for the day, so oh, where are we going today? Right, we're going to, let's go as far as the high water bridge, cut across, go up to Kwan, turn left, go down to Skukuza. So it, it's, it's very much done on an ad hoc, you know, as, as you, the feeling takes you. Sometimes you choose right, sometimes you choose wrong. It's like tossing a coin, but I'm not one for sitting there and it, it's purely gut feel, not sit there previous night and plan I'm going to do. When that gate opens, you get a feeling where you've got to go. It's hard to. Fair enough. And uh, yeah, no, um, it's it's one of those things that uh, sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't. But then in the same respect, sometimes you've got to blow up a tyre and it takes you 15 minutes and a leopard walks out in front of you five minutes later. So Definitely. Yeah. I so. also, um, I, I, I'm one of those irritating people that drive along at about between 20 and 25 <laughs> k's. And if I'm really looking for a leopard late afternoon and I'm looking into each gully and each tree, Okay, let me, you can't see me. No, I can see you now. Let me reconnect. Yes, oh, you can now. I've got you now. I've got you. Okay. Apologies for that. No, no Apologies problem. Apologies for that. So you were saying that you're one of these people that drive <laughs> 15Ks, um, 20Ks an hour? Yes, certainly don't. If 10Ks down, there's a leopard in the tree. I won't, I won't drive at 50 because I firmly believe that you're missing another two or three leopards on the way. Yes, in your in your haste to, to to get to the one in the tree so i'd rather get in my own time if it's there or we'll find another one so that each tree's own there's not a right and a wrong it's that's the beauty of the park each one does what what's in your heart exactly right and there's a lot to be said for driving slow because as you say uh, it's very easy to miss things um and by going a little bit slower you'll pick up things that you never knew were there I would say if you if you if you're after cats, John, if you if you really want to just see cats, then you need to put kilometers on your clock. Yeah. You need to drive closer to fifty than twenty. Uh, because the more kilometers you cover in a day, obviously the better chance there is of bumping into a cat sighting. But if you're there to enjoy the whole experience to see the birds and the little animals, the sharks, greysbooks and the steenbucks and the bushbuck. It's, it's part of one experience. Then cats don't matter that much. They're a bonus when you get. Yeah, fair enough. And on that note, Neil, um, I think it's uh, we've gone for uh, quite a while having a good time and good chat about some of the stories. So um, I'm going to say uh, thank you very much for your time and thank you very much for being so giving and sharing some of your stories with us. I uh, really do appreciate it. And from my side, John, thank you very much for, for inviting me to be part of, of your podcast. Uh, I'm honored to be, to be invited, and it was very, very nice talking to you, and I really enjoyed it. I wish we had another hour. I'm only getting going now. <laughs> uh, it's, it seems to be a common response with a lot of people. Uh, I should have told this story, and I wish I'd done that, but uh, maybe we can have a follow-up one day. Um, but, yeah, uh, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Go well. Thanks for listening to the Safari Stories podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's stories. If you liked our show and want to see the pictures and videos from today's stories, please visit our website at safaristories.com as well as Safari Stories Facebook page and Instagram. It would mean the world to us if you could take the time to leave a rating, review, or comment. Join us again next time to hear more Safari Stories.